Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, it's almost a week since Boris Johnson moved into Number 10 Downing Street and Dennis Staunton will be on shortly to give us his assessment of the new British Prime Minister's first days in office. But we're going to Detroit first, where Democrats seeking the party's nomination to run for the White House next year have gathered for their second debate. They do so at a time when Donald Trump continues attacking opponents in a manner that many see as a deliberate attempt by the US president to ignite racial tensions ahead of next year's election. Our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, is in Detroit for this week's debates and she joins me now from there. Uh, Suzanne, when you were last on just two weeks ago, we devoted the full podcast to the extraordinary fight that Donald Trump picked with four young Democratic congresswomen who all happen to be women of colour, whom he suggested should go back to the crime infested countries from which they came. Now, that controversy has barely subsided and now the president is involved in another one with similar racial overtones. Tell us about this. Yes, uh, this began, this new controversy uh, erupted at the weekend and it appears that Donald Trump was watching a segment on Fox News uh, in which a contributor talked about the city of Baltimore and some of the poverty uh, and uncollected trash and kind of bad conditions uh, that she had seen in the city of Baltimore. And within an hour or so, Donald Trump had tweeted. um, And in particular, he tweeted uh, and called out the city of Baltimore And in particular, um, it's one of its members of Congress, a very, very well-known African-American congressman called Elijah Cummings. And he, in this tweet, described the city of Baltimore as a rodent-infested place where no human being would want to live and basically called out uh, Elijah Cummings uh, for his leadership uh, in this district. So this attracted immediate um, pushback from really from across the, the, the Democratic Party. And in particular, Nancy Pelosi, uh, specifically labelled Mr. Mr. Trump's comments as racist. Um, but in, in true, what we're, as we see a lot of the time uh, w- with these controversies, uh, Donald Trump kind of kept the story going over a number of days. Uh, so on Sunday and Monday, he was back tweeting and kind of reiterating his original point. And um, it has now become the dominant news story here again. Uh, Donald Trump has been accused of using this language. It was the, it was the language he used about rodent infested. And he's saying that this city was a place where no human being would want to live. Uh, And and now people have gone back over his remarks over the last few years and are making the point that he only ever seems to use language like this when he's talking about African-American districts. Um, What about the white working class areas uh, of the country that are suffering, for example, with the opioid crisis, with poverty? Why does he not pick on those? Why is a city like uh, Baltimore, uh, like Detroit, where I am now? Uh, so again, we have, we see Donald Trump um, orchestrating, I think, and then escalating a, a culture war um, in which he has been accused of racist behaviour. And, yeah, and in fact, in that the first tweet on Saturday, he he described Cummings District as a disgusting rat and road rat and rodent infested mess. The, the pedant in me wants to point out to Mr. Trump that rats are rodents, so it doesn't make sense <laughs> to talk of a rat and rodent infested mess. But leaving that aside, what, what prompted this particular attack? And since why Elijah Cummings? You know, yeah, um, well, th- this is significant. Um, Elijah Cummings, um, he had been quite vocal in the previous week or so about conditions at the southern border when he gave a kind of a passionate um, interchange, interjection during a congressional hearing last week in which he talked about the conditions at the border, that they, you know, who would want their children to live in those kind of conditions. So that seems to have got under the skin of Donald Trump. He was kind of looking for a reason, according to some reporting, to go after Elijah Cummings. Um, 
he is also uh, he's 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 very influential in the homeland security um, field in the oversight committee, which he, he's a chair of. So he's become a lot much more um, high profile. He's also someone that garners a lot of respect across the political spectrum in the United States. I mean, I can't stress enough how well known Elijah Cummings is. Um, he's he's been in the in Congress for many years and. Uh, significantly, back in February, when uh, Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, was uh, testifying before Congress, there was a moment when one congresswoman, Congresswoman Tlaib, who has now become very well known because she's one of the squad, the four congresswomen um, that was targeted by Donald Trump earlier this month. But she, during that uh, hearing, it became very, very tense because she accused, accused Mark Meadows, a South Carolina Republican, of using basically a token African-American person. He had brought out a woman who had worked for Donald Trump and trying to make the point that Donald Trump was not racist because Michael Cohen had said that Donald Trump had uh, had racist tendencies. And during that intervention, Elijah Cummings, who was kind of chairing this whole hearing, intervened on behalf of Mark Meadows, a completely different kind of person to Elijah uh, Cummings, and said, hang on, Mark Meadows, most people probably don't know this, but he is my friend. Um, he is not racist. And, you know, we come from very difficult political positions, but please don't call him racist. So Elijah Cummings, in a kind of moment of honour, stepped in there publicly. The moment went viral and stood up for his white Republican colleague, Mark Meadows. So you see the very gracious uh, kind of a figure with a huge moral authority in the U.S. Congress. So for Donald Trump to go after him, I think, was very, very explicit. Um, and in a sense, maybe he was goading some Republicans because, of course, the first question that came on everyone lip, everyone's lips was, well, where is Mark Meadows now? Mark Meadows, when uh, Elijah Cummings jumped to his defence publicly, why isn't Mark Meadows now jumping to Elijah Cummings' defence? Now, Mark Meadows did put out a statement through someone else saying that um, neither Cummings nor Trump, he knew both men were racist, trying to calm things down. A lot of people saw that as insufficient. But that's just to illustrate that Elijah Cummings is a very high profile, very highly respected figure in US politics. And there's a similar pattern, of course, is on with the, the, the two controversies, if you like, the first one involving the, the, the squad, the Democratic Party congresswomen, and now the second one involving Elijah Cummings, in that even if Trump can argue that his initial uh, criticism wasn't intended, the racial overtones weren't intended, um, when they were pointed out to him, he just, uh, instead of backing off, he's doubled down in, in both cases, hasn't he? So does, 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 what does that suggest to us? Is there a strategy at play here? Does he think this is playing well to his base or, or what do you think? I think it does. I think it does. Now, of course, Donald Trump has denied it. his comments were racist. Um, and Mick Mulvaney, his, the acting chief of staff, was, was one of the first figures from the Trump administration to be asked about this on Sunday when the uproar began. And he said, this is not a question of race. It's to do with, um, you know, urban poverty, essentially, in these cities. And he's calling it out. Um, and he was almost repeating lines that had been used by Stephen Miller a few weeks previously. That's another Trump aide who, again, said this is nothing to do with race. But in fact, Donald Trump's behavior since I think really shows that he is uh, casting this as a racial issue. Um, on Monday, he continued his attacks on Elijah Cummings, but he also um, attacked another very prominent African-American man, Reverend um, Al Sharpton. And in a series of tweets, um, Sharpton came out and, and criticised Trump in a press conference in Baltimore. And Trump then again took to Twitter and really castigated Sharpton. And he, he said uh, at one point in, a, in one tweet, he said he hates whites. And cops. So I think, you know, that kind of language accusing Sharpton of hating whites, I mean, that is essentially setting up a, a, a race war, trying to incite a kind of um, 
racial divisions uh, in the country. So as you say there, yes, instead of stepping back from this and saying, sorry, I apologize if this was offended anyone, he in fact ran with it. Donald Trump kind of set this alight and he let, he, he, he waited back to see how it played and, and he ran with it. Um, and then, as I said, doubled down over the next few days. Uh, so we're now in a situation where um, race uh, over the last month has become a theme that Donald Trump, I think, is is deciding to focus on, that he believes, and some of his supporters believes, it is something um, that will maybe, you know, in, you know, try and motivate some, at least some, of his base. And some of these tweets and comments, Suzanne, that he makes, they must make for very uncomfortable reading for uh, establishment, if you like, members of the Republican Party. Yeah, and I think this is, again, um, what Democrats are really trying to highlight, which has been the kind of silence, again, from Republicans uh, against Donald Trump. The Elijah Cummings, that's why I think he picked on Elijah Cummings uh, in particular, because he, he is seen as a man who can work across the aisle, who's respected um, by a lot of Republicans, and by almost daring, I think, people like Mark Meadows, who is a big ally of Trump, to come out and defend Elijah Cummings. I think Donald Trump did that very, very strategically. Um, but again, what we have seen is it's basically a silence from re- Republicans. Uh, similarly, with his comments about the four non-white Congresswomen, um, d- Republicans kind of danced around it. Some of them um, some of them said they didn't think that he should use that language, but they stopped short of calling it racist. And even yesterday, um, now the House of Representatives has finished for the summer recess. So there is kind of a vacuum in terms of news and in terms of reaction. But the Senate is still in session for a week. So a lot of senators um, who were going about their business in Washington uh, on Monday were asked about this. And even people like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was re-elected, was elected to the Senate in November. He came out with promises to kind of stand up to Trump to put himself at a remove to Trump and be a kind of critical voice. Some people thought he might be the new John McCain, someone who's going to stand up to Donald Trump. But he was asked about this latest controversy on Monday and he kind of brushed it away. He didn't answer the question. So when given an opportunity to condone or to condemn Donald Trump for this, um, you know, he didn't want to go there. So I think uh, Donald Trump Republicans uh, are, I think it's saying a multitude that they are um, declining to come out and condemn the president for this kind of uh, behaviour and this kind of language. And I think that legitimises it. And it certainly legitimises it among not only his core supporters, but maybe more moderate Republican supporters who feel kind of uncomfortable with Donald Trump's language, but can vote for him all the same. Because if people like Mitt Romney are not going to stand up to him, I think that gives them a green light to go ahead and vote for Donald Trump, even if they find some of his language um, a a bit too much, a bit offensive at some times. And of course, Suzanne, we're entering the next election cycle. And in, the, in that context, there was a very interesting analysis of election results and polling data done by the New York Times a couple of weeks back that suggested Trump is strengthening his advantage with the Electoral College, even while his support among the, the population at large is falling. Maybe just mm. remind us first how the Electoral College system works in, in US presidential elections. Yeah, this is the, the, um, the unique method uh, through which America elects its presidents. And basically, it is elected through a a combination of different states rather than an aggregate, a popular vote. So what we saw in the last election was that Hillary Clinton won more votes, but she was not elected president because she didn't win them in the right states. And Donald Trump won enough states 
um, to push him over to the line uh, and secure the presidency. And that is the reality of US politics. And there is no debate here really in this country about ever changing that. That is the way the system works. So if we look at um, polling and the situation now going into next year's election, Donald Trump has consistently been kind of underperforming in the polls. He's kept his core uh, voters happy um, and he's kept that quite solid. But he really has not managed to bring other people with him to kind of try and win wavering voters, to try and eat into a different constituency. Um, but the Electoral College map uh, does look like it may favour Donald Trump again. Because after all, and we, we also need to remember this, that Donald Trump, you know, in some ways got lucky in 2016. He won some of these swing states, well, all of them really, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida. Um, they all went for Donald Trump. A lot of things went right for Donald Trump on the night. But the, the figures were quite low. So, for example, here in Michigan, um, and I'm researching a piece at the moment I'm writing about, about the state of Michigan, there's about 20 million people in Michigan. But Donald Trump won the state by 10,000 votes. That's all. So it was a tiny majority. Now, the argument would be from a lot of Democrats that there's huge activism that Democrats are much more motivated to go out and vote this time. Uh, and as a result, they'll be able to flip that back. Um, but again, what this New York Times article suggests and looking at different data, and obviously it's very difficult to pin down, that in states, particularly Wisconsin, but also Michigan, that his core support is even stronger um, than it was. Uh, so in other words, it doesn't matter what happens in most of the other states. What matters are these key states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. That's what matters. And that's what's going to decide who goes into um, into the White House next time around. Um, and there are a few things, few interesting statistics here from De from Democrats. Um, I've been speaking to people who pointed out that in the midterm elections in November, Democrats did very, very well here at the state level. Um, you know, they flipped a number of seats, governors, secretary of state, they all went Democrats. So there was huge kind of uh, enthusiasm from the Democratic side. But um, midterm election participation does not reflect necessarily how people are going to vote in a presidential election. And a lot of that 2018 vote may have been down to, to local issues, that they did not like the governor. For example, in Flint, Michigan, they had a huge issue with the water. They were going to vote the governor and different officials out. And that different things come into play next year when they're voting for the presidential election. And also, again, an, an unbelievable statistic really is that hundred, I think up to 100,000 people in Michigan actually voted in 2016. Um, but voted for every other, voted for a number of other issues on their ballot, but didn't cast a vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Um, so you can see that both ways. A, it's a kind of a, a bad reflection on Hillary Clinton as a candidate, but it, it also works both ways. That maybe some people were not that comfortable with Donald Trump, but quietly they may be this time and they will cast their vote for him. So I think, you know, Democrats have to be very careful. And I think the key, again, to the White House will be winning back these, these states and Donald Trump does look like he is in a good position in those swing states. So there's a lot then for Democratic candidates to ponder in Detroit this mm. week. Mm. And uh, this completely feeds into the, the central debate everyone is having about the Democratic debate, which is who should be the best candidate for the party to pick and whether the party needs to tack centre or tack to the left. Now, as I, the scenario I just explained would suggest that Joe Biden is the person who could win these swing states, that he could um, win back some of these kind of rust belts, to use the term that's always used to describe these, these areas of America, to win back some of those voters that did. Michigan hasn't elected a, 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 a Republican president since 1988. So Joe Biden will be the person. But 
talking to people here in Michigan, this is, you know, Congresswoman Tlaib, for example, is here from Detroit. This is a, a state in certain areas among the Democratic community anyway, that's extremely left wing, very activist, very, very engaged in politics. And the, the counter argument is that if you have someone like Joe Biden, who people like, but are not hugely excited by, think he's too old, he's not the man for this moment, even though they feel he could beat Donald Trump, that they might not be motivated enough to go out and vote for him. Whereas if you had a more firebrand candidate who's more exciting, more to the left, that will motivate more people to go out and vote. So it's a very, very tricky and a hugely important question now for Democrats. Um, but the reality is that if somebody on the left uh, who excites voters, as I say, it is absolutely no use if those voters, if it increases turnout in California or New York or Connecticut, because those, you know, those states... We know what way they're going to vote anyway. They need to increase their Democratic vote in these swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin. And you're talking about certain districts, certain counties. There are literally counties that flip this for Donald Trump. So I think that's what Democratic strategists are uh, looking at. And um, now, obviously, one of the issues, again, a bit like the Electoral College, the way in which parties elect their candidates is also pretty um, archaic. Democrats in early voting states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and also um, states like Nevada, increasingly, and, and South Carolina will pick the candidate. So really, Joe Biden is leading in the polls at the moment, but really, I suppose no, those early states are where it's going to make the difference. Now, in saying that, um, Joe Biden, despite his very, very weak performance in Miami, um, is has bounced back in the polls. Um, there was a poll uh, on the eve of the debates here in Detroit which showed him uh, at about 33% nationally. Now, it's still only 33%, but it's well ahead of, um, it was actually 34%, that's a Quinnipiac poll, um, and we have Kamala Harris down at 12%. Um, now, a lot depends on how this goes this week. All eyes will be on Biden, how he deals with Harris and with other uh, competitors in the debate. He's due on the second night of yeah, the debate. Because just to recap, Suzanne, people will, will remember this anyway, but just uh, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, did Biden a lot of damage when the, mm. when the party had their first debate in, in Miami. So, and they're both on the same uh, the same lineup on Wednesday night. So they that's, are, that's one to watch. Yeah, That is definitely one to watch. He And actually, they have, uh, CNN is organising this debate and they have set out rules about how the debate will be conducted. And it looks like Joe Biden will be standing in between Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, the senator from New York, from um, New Jersey. Uh, they're the only two African-Americans running for the Democratic ticket. Uh, and Cory Booker has been quite aggressive against Donald, or against, excuse me, Joe Biden. Last week, he sharply criticized Joe Biden's criminal reform plan that, that Biden published last week. But interestingly, Biden hit back and, and blamed Cory Booker for presiding when he was mayor over Newark, uh, New Jersey, of presiding over a kind of stop and frisk policy by police officers that disproportionately uh, targeted African-American men, men. So we have got a sense in the Biden camp that uh, Joe Biden is going to go on the attack a bit more. Uh, he said himself something uh, last week like, you know, I'm not going to be so nice this time around. Um, but, you know, he, he he really needs to be. I think uh, another poor performance Joe, for, by Joe Biden could spell serious difficulty uh, for his campaign. Um, he frankly looked looked his age. He was not able to defend himself against Kamala Harris's attacks, even though the issues on which she attacked him, issues of race, had been in the ether for a week or two. So he should have known that this was going to come up. So I think this would be the, he is the front runner. 
And this will be the defining, um, you know, narrative from this debate. Look, we might see other people uh, try making an impact. Pete Buttigieg, for example, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. And that's important. But I think the defining uh, moment in this debate will be how Joe Biden performs on Wednesday night and whether he is able to present himself as a credible candidate to take on Donald Trump. OK, Suzanne. Well, we look forward to reading your reports and analysis from Detroit on irishtimes.com over the next two days. Thanks for that. You're listening to the Irish Times. Thanks again to Suzanne Lynch in Detroit. It's to the UK now, where the new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is enjoying his seventh day in office as we speak. For an assessment of how he's doing and what we've learned from Johnson's first week in power, I'm joined now by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Uh, Dennis, I said there Boris Johnson was enjoying his seventh day in office. Of course, I wouldn't know that for sure, but he does seem to be enjoying himself, doesn't he? He certainly looks as if he's enjoying himself a lot more than Theresa May ever looked as if she was. And there's no question that but he's arrived into office uh, with a lot of energy. Uh, there's a sense of him and his senior advisors taking, you know, getting a grip on government and starting with this very brutal cabinet reshuffle and a complete sort of reshaping of, of the cabinet and then installing particularly this uh, advisor, Dominic Cummings, who was the uh, the campaign director of Vote Leave, the uh, the main uh, Brex, pro-Brexit referendum campaign organisation in 2016, you now have uh, a clear strategy of preparing for a no-deal Brexit and of setting uh, a pre condition for talking to the European Union, saying you have to abolish the backstop, which they now call uh, officially, they refer to as the anti-democratic backstop. You have to get rid of that and then we'll start talking. Has anything surprised you about his first week or has it all gone pretty much as you would have expected? No, I think the most surprising thing really uh, has been uh, the, the approach to the European talks, because uh, what you had seen during the uh, during the campaign was a hardening of his position. He began uh, at the very beginning of the campaign with the, really a fairly uh, ambiguous position on exactly what he wanted uh, in terms of changes to the withdrawal agreement. By the end, he was saying that it wasn't enough to have changes to the backstop or to have a time limit, you actually had to get rid of it altogether. But once he got into office, uh, not only was he repeating this, but also actually saying that until the European Union are prepared to uh, to talk about uh, dropping the backstop, reopening the withdrawal agreement, that essentially he wasn't going to talk to them. And so what this meant really, or what it means, is that he is on a course for a no-deal Brexit. And so the government is preparing for a no-deal Brexit. There's no nothing that he's done has suggested that there will be any talks. He's been invited to uh, to uh, France, to uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron's fort uh, for talks. He hasn't accepted that invitation. Leah Varadkar and Boris Johnson spoke on the phone this morning. And uh, Leo Varadkar invited him to come to Dublin. He obviously hasn't responded to that yet either. But uh, so it looks like certainly for the next while, we're not going to have any talks at all. And as, as we stand now, he appears to be careering towards a no-deal Brexit. And the question everybody is asking in Westminster and in other capitals is what happens when he starts to approach the cliff edge of a no-deal Brexit? Does he swerve? Is he stopped? What happens there? Because it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because despite all of that and that really hard line position he's taken, he continues to say that he's confident there will be a deal. Um, he repeated his uh, million to one odds against a, a no deal assertion. So what do you think his strategy really is here? 
Well, I think there's you know, there are a couple of strategies. First of all, uh, they certainly uh, want to give the impression that Europe is to blame, that it's Europe's intransigence. So insofar as this phrase, the anti-democratic backstop, has any meaning, uh, it's obviously designed to delegitimize the idea of the backstop, but also somehow to suggest that the European Union's demands of Britain are completely unreasonable and that no government could possibly accede to them. Whereas, of course, this is actually uh, the withdrawal agreement is an agreement which the British government signed with the European Union, uh, so the government, the Conservative government, uh, just a, a few months ago. Uh, so that I think that's part of it. So I think that part of this uh, suggestion that, like, on the one hand, I'm not going to talk to them until they climb down, uh, and on the other, I'm totally open to a deal, and really there's no reason why we shouldn't have a deal. I think part of that is preparing for the blame game. And, uh, and, so, uh, and then the other strategy, I think, is an electoral one. So what you've seen over the last few days is that the Conservatives' poll numbers have gone up. And the main reason for that is disaffected Conservatives who had shifted support to Nigel Farage's Brexit party are starting to come back. And I think this hard line on Brexit is designed to get them all back, uh, or most of them. So if you reduce the support for the Brexit party, which went above 20% at one stage, if you get that down to, say, 5%, which was what the rump of UKIP had uh, until relatively recently, then uh, you consolidate that. And it means then that the Conservatives uh, would be within kind of reach of, say, 40%. And if you get from 40% upwards, then you're in theory in a good position to win a general election. But I think the other impact that it has is that if, say, over the course of the month of August, uh, Johnson's poll numbers increase and the Conservatives' fortunes improve. He then returns to Parliament in September uh, in a stronger position within his party. But also one of the arguments that, say, Conservative rebels might have had in terms of uh, threatening a vote of confidence in the government would look a bit weaker if actually he looked as if he might win an election with a majority if he if it was called. So I think that uh, you know that that at the moment this very hardline strategy is going to help him in the polls. And then the question is, uh, you know, what happens once you are back in Parliament? Does Parliament try to stop him? Can it stop him? Does Europe blink in some way? Does he moderate his demands? Uh, or how does he uh, avoid a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October, if indeed that's what he wants to do? And Dennis, if the, if the kind of, if you like, medium-term strategy is to bolster his standing with the electorate, possibly even go ahead and, and have an election and come back with a majority, what then? Because even with a majority, we're still back in the position we're in now, which is uh, a withdrawal deal is there, it exists Brussels says, the European Union says, it's not going to be renegotiated. So what do you think your strategy would be at, at that point? Well, I think that uh, there are two things. One is that obviously his uh, negotiating position with Brussels is to some extent improved because right now, if you're Brussels or Dublin or Berlin or Paris, you're looking at Westminster and you see this government, which doesn't really have much of a majority, it's probably going to be down to one by the end of this week. Uh, and you know, and obviously it doesn't really have control of the whole of, of its party. And you think maybe uh, we don't have to do anything. Maybe Parliament will stop uh, Johnson from going towards a no-deal Brexit. But if he comes back and he has a majority, there are two things he can do. One is that he his bluff of uh, of saying I'm really going to go for this is much stronger. That you know it, it looks much more real. And then the other thing is that if he came back with a majority, he might not need the votes of the DUP. 
And there it opens up another option, which is that you have uh, the Northern Ireland-only backstop, what in Brussels they refer to as the skinny backstop. So if you remember, the original idea was that Northern Ireland, uh, if they couldn't find some other way of keeping the border open, that Northern Ireland would have regulatory alignment with the European Union so that you wouldn't have to have any checks on the border. And uh, and then what Theresa May said was that she would she didn't want to have any kind of border in the Irish Sea, and so she'd like the whole of the United Kingdom in this backstop. And the Europeans said, okay. But obviously, if you could go back to the idea of a Northern Ireland-only backstop, what that means is that you you solve the problem of the border, but you also it also means that Boris Johnson and company can pursue this kind of free trade, uh, you know, very hard Brexit, being outside the customs union, being outside the single market for the rest of the United Kingdom, which is most of it and most of its economy. And so that's one option that would uh, open up. And I know that some in Europe uh, are thinking that that might be a real possibility. And in fact, some of them are interpreting the phrase, the anti-democratic backstop as meaning something possibly to do with that. So uh, so that's one thing. But I think it's more just that it, uh, you know, it does strengthen his position. And if, he, you know, if, if you are getting towards a no-deal Brexit, maybe the Europeans will be willing to compromise in one way or another. Uh, but also, of course, it just does give him a mandate to go ahead with the no-deal Brexit. And part of this no-deal planning, I think, is very real. It is designed to try to mitigate the impact of a no-deal Brexit, and particularly in the short and medium term, so that uh, if there are going to be shortages, as far as you can uh, do something about it, you prepare for them, uh, you know, and you do you take all the precautions that you can uh, to try to to minimise the damage. And, and you mentioned Dominic Cummings there, Dennis. Um, what role do you see him playing in all of this? Well, he's his top advisor. He's apparently got the uh, the seat nearest to you know, the desk nearest to the door of Johnson's office, which would normally be the uh, the desk of the chief of staff. And uh, so he's the the key person in terms of advising both on the strategy for preparing for a no-deal Brexit, but also campaigning strategy. And what you've also seen with uh, Boris Johnson since he got into power is that every day he appears to be campaigning. He's out somewhere making a speech, making an appearance. And it's, it's a constant campaign. Uh, one of Donald Cummings' strengths is the use of is use of data, and that's data in terms of public opinion and of targeting messages to people, but also using data for uh, decision making in government. And apparently, one of the things that he's doing in Downing Street is trying to coordinate to make sure that in the No Deal planning, that uh, you know that, that much better use is made of data, so that the decisions are data driven. The combination of Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove who are both together essentially in charge of this no-deal planning, is a very powerful one because Michael Gove has long been known as one of the most effective ministers in the British government going back some years, including when he was Minister for Education. And they worked together at that time. And he's also somebody who was always very sceptical about the idea of a no-deal Brexit because he's some, you know, one of the few ministers who, you know, who was a Brexiteer but who actually really has been worried about the prospect of what might happen. So by putting this person in charge of it with someone like Dominic Cummings, who's a very ruthless and very, uh, and very controlled person, or controlling person indeed, and it's quite clear that all the political advisors from all of the departments who have to uh, report to him are 
terrified of them. He told them the other day that, uh, you know, he's got a new one leak and you're out policy. So anybody who's caught leaking is out. And that, of course, was leaked immediately to the Daily Telegraph. But still, it's, uh, you know, but the fact is there is this sense of grip. And so I think the fact that you've got the two of those and the other thing which both of them have is a deep skepticism about the capacity of the uh, British state and governmental system. And so if, say, some civil servant says, yes, we've got this sorted, they're not going to take that at face value. And so I think there's this, uh, you know, you have this, uh, these two people uh, in a key position. And I think if there is any chance of preparing for a no-deal Brexit, they'll probably be able to do it. The problem is, that the consequences of a no-deal Brexit are very difficult to calculate and to predict. But it certainly appears that if you look at the currency markets over the last day or two, as it's become clear that a no-deal Brexit is more likely, the pound has been hit very badly. And these currency traders at least appear to believe that it's going to, you know, if you did have a no-deal Brexit, it would have a very serious impact on the British economy. And, and what about Johnson's opponents um, within the Conservative Party, Dennis? The, the establishment, if you like, are now in the back benches. How far do you think people such as Philip Hammond, the former Chancellor, are prepared to go to try to prevent a no deal Brexit from happening? Well, they say they're prepared to go uh, a long way. Uh, and, uh, and certainly if you speak to those people, say, uh, who all have already backed some of the, uh, the, the, the motions trying to stop a no deal Brexit, they say that they're prepared to... Uh, to do all kinds of things in Parliament. But very few of them are willing to vote down their own government because of the fear that you put Jeremy Corbyn uh, in there instead. But what you, what's been noticeable in the first week of uh, Johnson and Downing Street is how quiet these people have been. You've heard reports about Philip Hammond and Rory Stewart, uh, both cabinet ministers who resigned before Johnson came in, that they're planning to work with business people to have a big campaign, a public campaign against no deal. There are also reports uh, are, that I certainly can't verify at all of contacts between Philip Hammond and Keir Starmer Labour's shadow Brexit secretary about somehow uh, some kind of national government almost. So I think there are conversations going on, but I think what they've strategically decided to do, the, um, the, the, the critics of Johnson in the Conservative Party, is to lie low for a bit, to uh, let him uh, do what he's doing for the moment and really to wait until Parliament comes back to work out uh, so that by then they think they'll know a bit better actually where he is going if there has been any movement either on his side or on the side of Europe uh, towards any kind of a deal and then if, if they still appear to be heading towards no deal when they come back to Parliament in September they then have to work out what are their options uh, you know how can Parliament stop a no deal Brexit there's one uh, there's only one really uh, foolproof way and that is by revoking Article 50 and effectively cancelling Brexit, and they can certainly do that. But that's a, you know that's a big step that uh, that I think you wouldn't have a majority for in Parliament right now. And you know, and what they're now trying to work out is are there other parliamentary stratagems, or do they actually go for uh, a confidence vote and uh, and a general election? And so that you know, I mean, the other you know, a lot of speculation around Westminster is that actually what Boris Johnson is hoping for is that he start, you know he drives towards the cliff of a No Deal Brexit, but then the Parliament tries to stop him, and he then says, uh, "I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to deliver on the result of the referendum in 2016, but these people in Parliament, these elites, uh, won't let me, and so I need a mandate for that." And then what he does is either that he has 
a general election before uh, October the 31st, which would mean he'd really have to call it in early September, or else that he would uh, you know, seek a kind of a technical extension from the European Union for a few months, say up to the end of the year or even up to the end of November or something, and say, uh, I, I want this to call a general election. And then the issue obviously is what is he looking for a mandate for? Does he say, I want a mandate for a no-deal Brexit? Or does he say, I want a mandate to deliver Brexit? We'd like to do it with a deal if they get rid of the anti-democratic backstop. But if necessary, we'd go for a no-deal Brexit. And the idea then would be that, uh, you know, he comes back having won it. And uh, and so, but, you know, there's a, it's, a very, it's a very doubtful picture as to whether if he were to have a general election, he indeed would win it. So where do you see all this headed, Dennis? Do you expect the UK to be out of the EU by October 31st? Do or die? I I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think it's very difficult for him to climb down from where he's put himself. He's boxed himself into uh, a, a corner on top of a very tall tree. And so, it's, it's, so to get himself out of the box and down the tree to the point where uh, he's making a demand from the European Union that they would consider to be in any way negotiable seems to me to be quite uh, a struggle over the next few weeks. And he's also giving no impression of being in a hurry, any hurry to do so. On the European side, there is no appetite as of now for, uh, certainly for abolishing the backstop, uh, or even for any kind of major surgery, I think, uh, right now at least. And so I don't see uh, you know, any way that we're heading for a deal uh, by the 31st of October. And I do think it's going to be difficult for him since he put so much store by the idea of uh, of leaving on the October the 31st do or die and you know, and given that well, the one thing the conservatives know is that their poll numbers really took a dive after March the 29th when they failed to deliver on that uh, deadline for uh, for leaving the European Union and so i think that uh, you know i think they will try to be out by October the 31st and as i look at it right now it looks as if uh, it's heading towards a, a no-deal Brexit. But if I speak to many of my colleagues and other politicians, say, around Westminster, uh, they're sceptical about that and they think that somehow he will find a way to avoid uh, a no-deal Brexit. But uh, but I think, we do, I think that's where he's heading. And what we don't know right now is uh, what happens towards the end. Is he, does he swerve? Is he stopped? Is he blocked? Or does he go straight ahead? That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.